This book is one of the most important writings in the Scriptures, so much so that it is cited several times in the New Testament, and the great doctrinal books of the New Testament include a portion of this book as a central tenet of their teachings. Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews all mention that famous saying in chapter 2, verse 4, that the just shall live by his faith. And of course, they expound on it in different ways. But that is a lesson that God teaches, first of all, to this prophet Habakkuk, a guy that we don't know much about personally, but he has an interesting book, three chapters, very short book. But though they're short, and though he's called a minor prophet, he's a major leaguer like Nahum was. You should never judge communication by how much is said, but by what is said. A person can speak for a long time and say absolutely nothing or say the same thing a thousand different ways. And, you know, it's, you know by the third or fourth time, you've gotten the point. Habakkuk gets to the point. It's a short kind of a prophecy, but there's so much in it. It's really inexhaustible. And God's people have held on to these truths for, for generations. At the time that he is writing... A lot of things are happening. First of all, the northern kingdom, Israel. Now remember, when we mention the northern kingdom, for you who are uninitiated, or if you are initiated, let's get back to remember what that means. The kingdom has been divided. After Solomon, there was a deterioration. The kingdom was split into two. The kingdom of Israel was split into two. Ten tribes in the north, two in the south. Judah is the southern kingdom. Israel is the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel has fallen already to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom of Judah is the object of this prophecy. That's what we're dealing with here. King Josiah has recently died. He was a good king. He started at 12 years of age, uh, learned the ropes from some of the older guys, began many reforms in his nation. But he has now died. And between Josiah and Zedekiah are a series of kings, all of which were corrupt in the south. There's Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim, and finally Zedekiah. After Josiah died, there was not a good king to sit upon the throne of Judah. All of them were corrupt, degenerate. And the nation is degenerating spiritually. And there's so much violence that is overriding uh, in the country. And the people of God are suffering. The wicked are prospering. The people of God are suffering. And that causes in Habakkuk's mind perplexity. And he asks God about it. He asks some heavy-duty questions, questions that you've asked, questions that any thinking person would ask. God, why? Why does this happen, number one? in a world that you created? And number two, why do you as a holy, just, loving God allow it to continue to happen? You've asked those questions. You've wondered about that. A lot of people ask those questions. In fact, man gropes for answers to those questions. We're born with those questions. Why? In fact, you, you could boil all of the questions of mankind down to that one question. Why? He asked that big question. Now people deal with the perplexity in a number of different ways. Some people just ignore it or they just admit, yes, there's a perplexity, but they never deal with it adequately. And they just sort of go on to it, impervious. If there's an answer, if there's an answer, fine. If there's not, fine. They just go on. Other people ask those questions, never get a satisfactory answer, never press in to find the answers. They become bitter and hardened, calloused and cynical. Those are the kind of people you don't want to be around if you need great faith. They won't give it to you. Their doubt will be contagious. Then there are those wonderful people like Habakkuk who didn't have the answers, but he asked God for them and he wasn't satisfied until God gave it to him. He pressed in, he continued to seek, he asked, he knocked, and he sought after and he kept asking until God would give him a message. And I am convinced 
that God does not chide us for honest doubt. There's a difference between honest doubt and doubt that leads to sinfulness where it's unbelief. I think God honors honest doubt when we bring our questions to Him, not when we challenge Him. There's a difference. There are people who shake their fists at God. Hey, wait a minute. Hey, man, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes. I kind of want to move over when people are like that. And just if the lightning strikes, I don't want to be too close. But to ask honest questions, God, how long I've prayed about this, why do you allow this to happen? Gives God then the opportunity with an open heart to give you answers. And those answers can be very rewarding. Habakkuk asked those questions, and he gets some interesting answers in this book. Um, I, I would look at Habakkuk as like the Thomas of the Old Testament because he had a question mark for a brain in a good way. And the book of Habakkuk is not like an Old Testament prophecy per se, though it's included in the minor prophets. It's mainly a conversation that the prophet has with God. That's basically, it's a, it's a set of questions and answers in his personal relationship and dealing with God over the hard issues of life. He's not giving a proclamation to Judah or to Israel as much as he's recording what happened as he asked God a series of questions and the answers that God gives to him. Um, verse 2 says, O Lord, how long shall I cry? And if you look at the very end of the book, he says, The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high places. The book begins with gloom. It ends with glory. We want to find out why. It begins with a huge question mark. It ends with a large exclamation point. We want to find out why. How you can be converted from doubt to confidence. Because you live in a society that is described in the first chapter of this book. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. The burden could be better translated the judgment. The reason it is a burden to him is because God gave him an answer that he's going to judge his people. He's asking God, why? How come you're not working? How come you're not acting? God says, I am. But Habakkuk doesn't like the answer, so it's a burden as he shares it. Let's listen to the cry of his heart. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble for plundering and violence are before me? There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds." Have you ever got, asked God a question like the one in verse 2? Lord, I've been praying about this for a long time. How come you won't answer me? Trying to find out God's timing and coming to find out when God doesn't answer you when you want to that God has His own timing and not yours and that God doesn't always act or react to your timetable. That's a difficult lesson to learn. I've wondered sometimes at God I've seen things happen and I sat down and I said, God, I can't believe you passed up such a good opportunity. I'm surprised at you, Lord. There it was, right in front of you. You could have done such amazing things and the result of that would have been so many people coming to know you. Why have you let this thing go on for so long, God? I don't understand the way you're working. Now Habakkuk brings up a point of violence that perplexes him. And as we said, after Josiah died, there was not a good king to sit upon the throne of Judah. A series of degenerates sat upon the throne till eventually Zedekiah was sat upon the throne by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And later on when he rebelled, he was ripped off the throne. He took... Zedekiah's sons killed them before his eyes and then put out his two eyes. And so 
justice has not been in Judah for some time. Violence is upsetting. He's a man of God and he lives among a people called the people of God who are not obeying the law of God. They're not listening to the law of Moses. The priest has no input into the people's lives anymore. They're not listening to the prophets. People could care less about the dictates of their Creator. They're doing what is right in their own eyes. They're completely existential in their philosophy. The law is powerless. God, how long should I cry out to you violence and you will not save? And why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? You could ask that question in another way. God, if you're so good and you're so loving, why do you allow evil to persist? I recognize that you are a God of love, and he'll see this in here later on. I recognize certain things about you. You're good. You're a God of love. You've made covenant promises. Because I know about you, I'm perplexed because of what I see. What I know of you and what I see, they don't match. Why do you, a God of love, allow evil to continue? That question has been asked and has continued to be asked in every generation by lots of people. Satan really asked that in the garden. When the first couple said, hey, look, God said we can eat of the trees of this garden freely, but we have to lay our hands off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan said, did God really say that? God knows that if you eat of the fruit of this tree, in that day you'll be as wise as God. In other words... Why would a God of love keep such wisdom from you? Such prerogatives from you? Challenging the love of God and the Word of God. Plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Years ago in the East Coast, a group of pseudo-theologians and mock philosophers developed a theory known as the God is dead theology. Basically what it means is God never existed. He never was alive. He's not alive today. Or God existed at one time and we've kind of driven Him out. God wound up the clock and stepped back from His creation and lets us go. But He never interferes. Because look around, man. God is silent. God isn't saying much. God isn't interfering. The world goes on at will. God must be dead. That was basically the question... And the perplexity Habakkuk had, God will answer it. But we might ask the same question today. You talk about violence. This country is full of it. People are afraid to go on a tour with us to Israel. But they don't think twice about taking a little trip to Manhattan or Los Angeles. Now logically, that doesn't make sense. Emotionally it makes sense because you hear all of the news over the television that, oh, it's dangerous over in Israel, you know. And all they show you is a few little villages on the West Bank where they're throwing rocks. And it is dangerous. If you live in that neighborhood and you're out there when CNN is out there, especially when CNN is out there because that's when they want to throw rocks so that the world will think it's violent over there and that they'll make a big to-do with the cameras. So emotionally, I can understand. Logically, it makes no sense. It's much more dangerous statistically to live here than it is to visit Israel. Or for that matter, even Jordan and some of the Arab countries. But people make decisions often emotionally, not logically, based upon what the news will portray. But the violence in our own country, I... Uh, cut out a few things for you this evening. I'm not going to go into depth on it, but... Today, there's a greater chance of being a victim of, of a violent crime than being hurt in a traffic accident. A serious crime in the United States will cost the criminal an average of 8.5 days in prison. 70% of all violent crimes are committed by only 6% of all violent criminals. More than half are released to the streets awaiting trial. Of those, 20% escape and 16% commit other crimes while released. And finally, for every, every 100 serious crimes committed, only five criminals go to jail. Now listen to what Ecclesiastes 8 says. Because the sentence against an evil work is not 
executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Solomon hit it right on the head. Now, this bothers Habakkuk. It bothers lots of us. Let's be honest. We wonder, God, how long are you going to let Satan do his thing? And people ask you questions like that, and some of you fumble for answers, don't you? How could a God of love allow that to happen over in this country, or that earthquake in that country, and this violence? How come He lets it go on? Habakkuk said, God, this is your nation, man. We're your people. We've gotten your law, we've got your worship system, and yet there's violence and corruption. Why? How long? And justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. This didn't just bother Habakkuk. It bothered all the great men of God. I think of David. David in Psalm 73 said, As for me, my feet almost slipped. I stumbled at the thought, he said, of the wicked gaining prosperity and the righteous people suffering. It really bothered me. Lord, why is it that when we serve You, we often incur persecution, distress, trial? Yet I look at wicked people and they seem to have all the pleasure and parties and fancy things and they just go on and on and on, just never a care. He said, that bothered me to the extent that my feet almost slipped. I almost stumbled in my steps following the Lord. Until toward the end of the psalm, he said, until I went into the sanctuary of God and I understood their end. You've marked them out for judgment. When I went to church, in other words, I saw that things are in a different light, a different perspective. I took you into consideration and I understood that, yeah, the wicked are prospering, but one day they won't. One day they will cash in and a man will reap whatever he sows. Look at the Lord's reply to Habakkuk. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you, for indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans. God, how come you're not working? Well, actually I am working, Habakkuk. In fact, I'm working in the kind of a way that if I told you my plan, you wouldn't believe it. I'm working. Wake up and smell the coffee, Habakkuk. Look around at the nations. Notice what's going on over in Assyria. Notice that the Assyrian Empire has crumbled. Nineveh has been destroyed, even as Nahum predicted. Notice that Nabopolassar and Nebuchadnezzar are rising in power on the banks of the Euphrates River. That they're coming in and conquering. The Chaldeans, I am raising them up And yes, there's violence right now in Judah. Yes, that bothers you. But I've got a plan to take care of that violence. I'm going to come in and take all of the Judeans captive over to Babylon for 70 years. So I'm going to spank my people because of their iniquity, because of their violence, with a nation more wicked than they are. Thus, they'll be in captivity for 70 years. They'll repent in that state. I'll bring them back and restore them to their own land. That's what happened. Now, if you think Habakkuk had a problem with the first one, that there was violence, he's really going to become unglued now. God, why aren't you working? I am working. Babylon's going to come and I'm going to raise them up and get you guys. Babylon is going to get us? Now, he's really going to have a problem with this. That's why God says, which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. In other words, they are a law completely unto themselves. They are impetuous. They are given to war. Their doctrine is one of violence and war. And if you think you guys have been violent, where do you see these guys? And these guys will make you guys seem mild. And I'll punish your violence using their violence. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. 
Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. Now, what God predicted is going to come upon them and what is soon to come upon them because the Babylonians have already conquered the Assyrians. They are moving in from the north. They came against Jerusalem three times to overtake it. The third time they burned it to the ground. But already, either they have come the first time or they are about to come the first time. And either Daniel is about to or already has been taken into captivity along with Ezekiel. And God is using a a nation more wicked than His own people to bring them back to Himself. Now a lot of us would have a real problem with that. And He has a real problem with that. We'll see how God answers it. But what is happening is a fulfillment of a prediction that God made through Moses a long time ago before they even got into the land of Israel. While they were still going through the wilderness from Egypt into the promised land, God made a prediction. If you obey me, I'll do this. If you don't obey me, now listen to the language of Deuteronomy 28 as I read it to you. God says, Because you do not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of all things, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly, nor show favor to the young. And they shall eat the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land until you are destroyed. They shall not leave you grain or, white or new wine or oil or the increase of your cattle or the offspring of your flocks until they have destroyed you. They shall besiege you at all of your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout all your land. They shall besiege you at all your gates throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. God promised that He would come against them with another nation. He's doing that. The prediction is being fulfilled. Look at verse 9 of Habakkuk 1. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. All right, you're complaining about violence. I'll settle the issue, Habakkuk. I'll bring the Chaldeans against you. They're really violent. To show you that whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. You live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. You've been violent, you'll go into a nation that um, that's their doctrine, one of violence. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up mounds of earth, and they, see, and they seize it. Then his mind changes, and he transgresses. He commits offense, imputing this power to his God. Now, this is not the first time God has done this. In Isaiah chapter 10, God said that the Assyrians, we read about them last week, I mean, they were wicked, that they were the chastening rod of God, or to put it in modern vernacular, That's the paddle God uses to spank His kids with the Assyrians. Same here with the Babylonians. Now let's put this situation into a local setting. There are people who, during the wars of this country, and in fact the last war, the Gulf War, had a silly kind of pride concerning America looking at Babylon, which is Iraq, as the bad guys, thinking this nation is one nation under God, it will not fall. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys. God would certainly not let this nation ever fall to guys like that. Beware if you think that's true in the future. I don't want to sound like I'm uh, overthrowing the... uh, centrality of our government. But for us to smugly think that because this nation started out with godly principles, and it did, we had the freedom to worship God, not the freedom from worshiping God as some interpret it now, taking it out of our schools, making everything without God. Though our nation started out that way, if you think God will not use a nation more wicked than we are to spank us, you may have another thing coming. 
God may just do that. He has done it in the past. I wouldn't be surprised if He's getting ready to do it again. Because we've enjoyed such liberty, such abundance, and we have turned from our God. And it could be that that's what we need. If there's not a repentance, a revival that sweeps this country, we're heading down that same road that Israel was. And we complain, God, why don't you do something? Now, what would you think if God interrupted your prayer life and you said this? All right, I will. I'm going to make life really miserable around here. They're going to shut off all the oil. Foreign troops will attack your shores. And, you know, you could go down the list of wartime activity. I'll do something about it. They haven't listened to me in the past. They'll listen to me now. And it's true. Anytime a nation has been in great perplexity nationally, usually out of that stems great revivals. You could look at it in the Great Depression. You could look at it through the wartime. That there is a turning. Well, look at what happened in the Gulf War. When all of a sudden we announced over the airways that Baghdad is, is being bombed, we were engaged in a war. Look what happened to church attendance all across this nation. People wanted answers. What happens when we say the war's over? Attendance drops off. Because God becomes a convenient fix it medicine, an emergency room. Hey, God, listen, uh, you're a cool dude and everything, but don't interfere with me, all right? Now, when I'm in a jam, don't worry, I'll knock on your door. You'll be my emergency room. When I, I'll call you, don't call me. Don't demand my life. Don't take over my life. I want to follow you on my own turf, my own way. And too much of that, and God may just lovingly to call us back to Himself, act, that our nation might turn again. Don't know. Okay. First question is answered. He's got a bigger problem at this point. Are you not from everlasting? <laughs> oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. Lord, You've appointed them for judgment. Oh, rock, You have marked them for corruption. Uh, corruption. Correction. Can you imagine arguing with God? Yes, you can, because you've done it before. Let's be honest. I think of Peter. Bless his heart. In the book of Acts, Peter is on a housetop. He's hungry. And around lunchtime, when his you know, stomach's growling, he sees this vision of a sheet let down from heaven with all of these unkosher meats and beasts and creeping things on the sheep. Things that a Jew would never eat. They're unclean. They're not kosher. And the voice from heaven said, Peter, get up, kill these things and eat them. And Peter was so obedient, wasn't he? He said, not so, Lord. He argued with God. God said, do this. No, no way, God. I've never, I've never had anything that's unclean or common. Arguing with God. Now you can say, not so, buddy. Not so, man. But you can never say, not so and Lord in the same sentence because it's a, it's a contradiction. If He's Lord, you don't argue with Him. You just say, when would you like me to do that, sir? <laughs> Jump? How high? You can say, not so, but you can't say, not so, Lord. But he argued with God. Now, Habakkuk is kind of in that situation. God says, okay, you have a problem? I'll answer your problem. I'm taking care of the violence. Don't worry about it. The Chaldeans are going to spank you guys real good. Now, wait a minute. God, that's not fair. They're more wicked than we are. We're not marked out for cor correction and judgment. They are. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look upon wickedness. Why do you look on these who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours one more righteous than he? Now look, God, we're bad. Yeah, I admit that. But they're worse. Okay, I admit it. Maybe I was hasty. There is some violence going on, but they're a lot worse off than we are. Give us a break. Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? 
Now, I want want you to go back before we finish out chapter 1, back to verse 12. He says something that is true. We shall not die. We shall not die. God had made promises that still hold true today to three fellows in particular. Very important. And God, even though they're dead by our standards, they're alive by God's standards, they're with Him. God made promises to these three gentlemen that He intends to keep. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made a deal with them concerning the nation of Israel that they would continue throughout generation after generation. God made a covenant with them, a covenant of the land that He will rule from Mount Zion and so forth. Though the amillennialist will say, God is finished with Israel, and now all of the promises that Israel has forfeited because of disobedience and crucifying the Messiah, and now they belong to the church, is hogwash. We will not die. We will not die. And you read the book of Revelation, you see they will not die. God has a plan for the Jewish people. Now you could use that verse and phrase for your own self if you were a Christian. We shall not die. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. And he who lives, uh, and though he were dead, yet shall he live. Didn't have it all. Kind of a little gap that I missed there. But uh, the idea is that you will always live as a believer before the Lord. Even when the curtain closes on this life, you'll be with Him. You will never die. You have eternal life now. It's not something in the future. People think, yeah, after I die, I'll have eternal life. You have it now. When you die, it's just the continuation of the relationship you have with God in a deeper, unfolded sense. We shall not die. Verse 15. They take up all of them with a hook. Now he's speaking of the Babylonians and the way they treated humans. They had a low regard for human life just like fish that are defenseless and have no rights. You know, you don't treat them um, uh, with having rights. Even animal rights activists really wouldn't get upset with a guy who goes out and catches fish for dinner. You wouldn't say, no, wait a minute, you didn't ask that fish's wife, you know, what he, she thinks about him being gone and dead now and in your stomach. Hey, that you survive, man. And look at these Babylonians. They treat us without rights. They treat us without any kind of regard at all for our lives. They gather them in their dragnet. They rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net. They burn incense to their dragnet because by them their share is sumptuous and their food plenteous. They shall therefore empty their net and continue to... to, Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? In other words, are you going to let the Babylonians just go into the future destroying people after people? God says basically, no. Now, chapter 2 is another division. Question, answer. Argument, now there's going to be an answer. And then God will basically say, look, I'll take care of these Babylonians. I know they are more wicked than you are, Habakkuk. I will punish them for their own sin. They are responsible for their sin. But in the meantime, I will allow their wickedness to cross your borders to teach your people a lesson so that they come back to me and in the end I'll punish them for their wickedness against the Jewish nation. Okay, now look at verse 1 of chapter 2. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart to watch, to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am reproved. (laughs) He says, look, God answered me the first time, so I'm not shy to ask him another question. And I asked him the question, and I want an answer. And okay, I'll just wait. He'll he'll probably reprove me. But I'm going to wait around and see what answer he has to give to me. I like that about him. He kept pressing in to get the answer with God. And I appreciate a person who goes to God directly to get answers. Though God's people sometimes can direct to the answers. You can say, well, you know the Bible. Okay, great, thank you. You shared it, cleared it up. But there's lots of things we don't know. I, people ask me lots of questions. I mean, every day that I'm here. Well, now, why would God... I don't know. Have you asked Him? And part of my ministry, I feel, and job is not to develop a dependence upon me. It's unhealthy if people depend upon me or depend upon another man. But part of the process is to wean people on a total dependency upon God. 
Oh, wait a minute, you're our shepherd. No, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I am an under-shepherd pointing you to the only true shepherd. I don't seek the Lord over your faith. I don't seek to make answers or give you answers for things in life. Um, There has been a movement, it is still intact, called the shepherding movement, where you have a shepherd, you tithe to your shepherd personally, he tithes to his shepherd personally, he ties to his, and someone's at the top making a little triangle. Shepherd, can I buy a television? Just a minute. No, you can't. God spoke to me. You can't do that. Shepherd, can I marry so-and-so? Just a minute. I'll pray. No, you can't marry them. You have to marry so-and-so. That's bogus, man. The Lord is my shepherd. And folks, it's hard enough listening to God for my own life than to take responsibility for so many others. I can tell you what God has done in my life. I can share the counsel of Scripture. I can tell you where to go to get the answers. Let's go together before the throne of God. Let's seek Him. Habakkuk had that beautiful pattern. God answered me the first time. I'm going to sit now and wait. I've asked God this question. I brought up my complaint. Why would you use a nation more wicked? Okay, I'm just going to sit on my watchtower and I'm going to wait for God. What will God answer me? The idea of a watchtower is common in reference to the prophets. The prophets were called watchmen over Israel. It was a metaphor term. A city in the Old Testament had walls around it. And you had a watchman who would sit in the tower, the ramparts, looking out over the landscape, especially at night. If people were coming in to destroy the city, you'd blow your trumpet and you'd tell everyone, the intruders, the attackers are on their way. If you missed that, the city could fall because of you. So... The prophets were called the watchmen of God. Ezekiel was called the watchman of Jehovah. So I'm just going to sit in my office, uh, the office of being a prophet. I'm open to what God has to say, and I'll see what God will answer me when I am reproved. I'm confident He'll answer. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, But at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. Because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Habakkuk, I'm going to give you an answer. Take notes this time, buddy. Take notes. Write it down, man. Write it down for the future so that when people read the revelation, they run with it. They run and they basically, they run with the message after reading it. They become my emissaries, swift on their feet to do my bidding. Now, a problem that I have found with many who aspire to ministry is that they run without a message. They run without being called or prepared by God. They don't have anything to run with. They just run and they are excited and they're full of zeal. But you pin them down, they really don't have a message. They just think they ought to be busy. They ought to be doing something. So they're doing whatever. But oh, the need to get direction from God, vision from God, and preparation from God. And it can come in a variety of ways. But for instance, we look at the disciples. They were called unlearned and ignorant men in that they didn't go to the theological schools of Judea. And a lot of us think, yeah, well, you know, the disciples never had training. I don't need any training. Well, they did have training. They were with Jesus in the flesh for three and a half years. That's pretty good training. That's pretty good. Not everyone is the same, but there is the need for preparation to have the message, to know the message, and then to run with it. So write it down. Take notes. It's for a time yet appointed. Now, here's the central target of this uh, entire book, verse 4. Behold the proud. It's a contrast verse. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. God, I don't understand what you're doing. How come you're not acting? There's violence all around. Habakkuk, I am acting. Smell the coffee, man. The Babylonians have wiped out the Assyrians. They're coming down on you guys. I'm going to chasten you. Wait a minute, God. We're bad, but they're worse. Why would you allow that to happen? And now God contrasts the proud 
with the just, the righteous in the land of Israel. Here are the proud. They've left the law. They're walking in violence. They're perpetuating sinfulness. Contrast that with people like yourself, Habakkuk. Godly people, right? You will live by faith. The contrast is between life and death. Pride leads to death. Because in a pride, a person is not open to hear of the grace of God. Faith, trusting in God, no matter what the circumstances are, leads to life. Now God, throughout this chapter, will uh, really enumerate or elaborate, excuse me, on that, that central tenet. And it will actually end up in Habakkuk's own life. The just shall live by his faith. Now, verses 5 onward, the rest of the chapter, are, are a series of woes to the proud that he mentioned in verse 4, the Babylonians. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man. The Babylonians were known to be addicted to wine. They were alkies, man. They were alcoholics. They had an alcohol problem. Look at Daniel chapter 5, the feast of Belshazzar. A drunken orgy he had with all of his concubines and the rulers of the kingdoms. He does not stay at home. <laughs> you know, he just he has to be out every night partying. Because he enlarges his desire as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied, he gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. Shall not all these take up a proverb against him, a taunting riddle against him, saying, Woe to him who increases what is not his. How long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you and you will become their booty? Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sinned against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers will answer it. A series of woes pronounced upon the wicked, scheming Babylonians. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed. It's exactly what they did. They'd come in, they'd force the people out, they'd kill them ruthlessly. Behold, is it not the Lord of hosts that the people labor to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Things are bad now, Habakkuk. I am spanking you by using the Babylonians, but I'm going to punish them. They are decreed for judgment. Here's a list of woes against them. And though it's bad, though you'll suffer, the outcome will be the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord and waters cover the sea. It won't always be this way, Habakkuk. I have set an appointed time in the future when I'm going to deal with this mess. Don't worry. Hang on. Live by faith. The just will live by faith. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink be exposed as the uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be on your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, the plunder of the beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood and violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. It was pretty typical of the Babylonians when they conquer a land to denude the countryside of the forest, to cut down the trees. Why? Because they would use the wood to build battering rams to break through the walls of a city, number one. Number two, when you take vegetation off of the hills, like in Lebanon and in Israel, you can erode that place like crazy. You create rivulets. Well, look around Albuquerque. There's not a whole lot of vegetation naturally that grows in this part of the world. And look at the embankments of the roads after they build it up and after a heavy rain you can just totally destroy it because there's nothing that keeps the ground in place. There's no root systems. And so uh, you have horrible mudslides and uh, you would devastate the people by taking away natural protection. Nothing could grow. They'd have no farms for years to come. It would make the land uh, uh, barren, 
take the uh, nutrients out of the soil. It was a way of long-lasting devastation. Now, verse 18 through 20, God decrees judgment upon the Babylonians for the worst sin of all, idolatry. Listen to the language. What prophet is the image that its maker should carve it, the molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols? Woe to him who says to wood, Awake! And to silent stone, Arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and in it there is no breath at all. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. The contrast of the true and living God and idolatry. Have you ever watched a person grovel before a statue? A couple weeks ago, I was speaking out in California, and my father-in-law lives next to the largest Buddhist shrine in North America. In fact, when I went to it, I thought I was in China. It looks just like things I've seen in China. And so I wanted to walk in. And I felt like Paul at Athens. My heart was grieved because the entire region was given over to idolatry. And there's this huge gold Buddha An unattractive kind of a guy, naturally, but spectacular when overlaid with gold. And there it was, this huge Buddhist statue and little Buddhas next to him and littler Buddhas around the room. In fact, every block of the building had little Buddhas in it. And I watched as people stood before this statue and I thought, do these people really think that this statue can hear them? I mean, the idea of going up to something that is lifeless, a piece of wood, and talking to it, having a conversation with it, looking at it in the eyes, praying to it. I know what that's about. I grew up with that kind of a thing. I grew up in a sect of the Christian church that it was, is given over to that kind of a thing. But now think about it. David brings this out in one of his psalms. He said, The idols, the carvings that people make are vain. They carve eyes in them, yes. But David said they can't see. You know, when we were a kid, my mom would have this little statue in her car. And of course, she'd always face it toward the road. I'm serious now. I'm not trying to mock anything. Come on, that thing can't see, Mom. It's a piece of plastic. It's not going to protect you. Think about it. David said they have eyes they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. So you can speak to it all day long. So what? You may feel good that you've unburdened your heart, but nothing happened. It's absolutely of no value. They have feet, they have hands, but they can't move. David said they're absolutely worthless, totally vain, and people who worship them become just like them. Empty and vain. That's a dictate of Scripture. A person becomes like his God. And so Habakkuk compares or God is denouncing Babylon here for their idols and how God will judge them because of it. The Lord is in His holy temple. Over in Jerusalem, God is dwelling in the midst of His people. And though they will be spanked, knowledge of the Lord will cover the whole earth. God will vindicate His own in the end. Chapter 3 now concludes with a song. It's a prayer. It says, A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet Anshigionot. You say, what is that? I have no idea. (laughs) No, I have some ideas, but I'm not absolutely sure. It is a musical term, no doubt. Probably used in the temple because there is a notation at the very end of the chapter to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. And scholars believe by tracing down the root word that it means a song with a fast beat, a heavy pace, sung with great emotion. Kind of like the songs that we had tonight before the service. It wasn't a dull, listless kind of a... I mean, this thing was packed full of uh, beat and emotion, and it was a joyful song. Shigionot. It's a song of praise and thanksgiving. It's a triumph of Habakkuk. Though he begins by voicing his concern, he ends with great praise. Let's look at it. O Lord, I have heard your speech, and I was afraid... 
O Lord, revive Your work in the midst of years. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now he begins by saying, Lord, I brought this complaint before You. You gave me an answer. And frankly, I'm scared. I didn't like the answer. Because You said that a nation more wicked than we are is going to spank us. I don't like that. And God, I don't understand Your methods. But, and here's the key, Revive your work in the midst of years. Lord, I don't understand your work. I don't understand your methods. But you told me, chapter 1, verse 5, you are at work. I said, God, how come you're not at work? You said, I am at work. Though I don't like the kind of work you're doing, God, necessarily, I'm puzzled by your methods. Keep your work alive, God. Or you could translate it this way. God, I don't understand what you're doing, but whatever you're doing, keep doing it. That's faith. The just shall live by faith. Lord, I look at my life. I've entrusted it to You. And yet I'm going through all of these painful experiences. Yet You promised me that You're at work. I don't know if I like Your work. But Lord, though I don't understand it, keep doing it. Keep doing it, God. You know it's best. But Lord, in the midst of all of this wrath, be tender. Remember mercy. Your people are about to experience great wrath in Babylon. Okay, keep it going, Lord. Do it. But remember mercy. That's the track record of the Most High. Look at verse 3. God came from Taman over in Jordan, Saudi Arabia. The Holy One came from Mount Paran. This is probably a vision or a theophany that he saw and he recounts through this apparition how glorious God has been throughout Israel's past. God is big. God is strong. God has delivered His people. And so I'm going to trust God. His glory covered the heavens. The earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from His hand, and there His power was hidden. Before Him went pestilence and fever followed at His feet. What's He speaking about? Egypt. The plagues in Egypt, how God showed Himself strong on behalf of His people, the children of Israel, by bringing plagues to expel the children of Israel out of the land. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan, southern Saudi Arabia, in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. O Lord, excuse me, Midian is Saudi Arabia. Akush is Ethiopia. Got my geography mixed. O Lord, you were displeased with the rivers. Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? What's he speaking about? The opening up of the seas, the Red Sea that opened up. God's power was so great, the mountain shook, the seas parted. Not only the Red Sea, but the Jordan when they crossed over into the land. Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their habitation. No doubt a reference to Joshua's experience at Gibeon when the sun stood still in the valley of Ajalon. The light of your arrows, they, as the light of the arrows they went, at the shining of your glittering spear, you marched through the land in indignation, you trampled the nations in anger, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck, you thrust through with his own arrows the heads of his villages, they came out like a whirlwind to scatter me, their rejoicing was like feasting, on the poor in secret. You walk through the sea with your horses and through the heap of great waters. He is recounting the fact, basically, that God gave them a land, got over through their enemies, God brought them through the dangers of the wilderness, opened up the Red Sea, opened up the Jordan. There was a settling of the land under Joshua. God gave it all to them. He's been strong. He's been with His people. As He looks back over their history, now notice what he says in verse 16. When I heard, my body trembled. 
My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. God, you've been strong in the past. You've gotten us out of Egypt through the wilderness, through the Red Sea. But when you told me what's going to happen with the Babylonians, ooh, I didn't like it. I trembled. I quivered. It scared me. Okay. Right now, and there's just a few verses left, he's kind of on a downer, right? He begins the book on a downer. God, why? God answers him. He doesn't like God's answer. He argues with God. God gives him another answer. He says, look, hold on, buddy. The just will live by their faith. The just will live by their faith. It's going to get bad, but I'll pull you through, and in the end, I'll make things right. Okay, God. And he begins verse 3 saying, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but keep doing it. And as I look over the history of Israel, you've been glorious. You've given us this land. You've been strong on behalf of your people, but I'm scared. I quiver. Okay, but listen how he ends the book. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines due to the devastation of the Babylonians taking down their trees. Though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet he will make me walk on my high hills. Either Habakkuk is an absolute maniac in the midst of such promise of desolation, capture, and devastation on the land to say, Ha! Oh, praise the Lord! You've got to be nuts, man. Or he's latched onto a secret of faith that we can learn from. He has discovered true faith. In fact, just to make it more emphatic, the wording in verse 18, I will rejoice, literally means I will jump in the air for joy. Now imagine. God, there's no, there's no herd, man. There's no olives. There's no figs. Woohoo! All right, Lord. And I will joy in the God of my salvation. That means I will spin around for joy in God. I'll jump in here and I'll spin around for joy. It's easy in the time of prosperity to say, I have faith. And brother, you ought to have faith too. For prosperity and for all the good things in life. Anybody can do That's easy. To say, though there's no herd in the stalls, no olives, no figs, and there's total devastation, I will rejoice in the Lord. Lord, I don't understand your work. Just keep doing it. Now, is it idealistic? No. What's the object of his joy? Not in the circumstances, in his experience with God. I will rejoice in the Lord, not in my circumstances. That's the key. You can have your eyes fixed on your troubles or on God who is over and overshadows your troubles. And it makes all the difference in the world, folks. If you have your troubles, and you could go home tonight and write them all down, and you meditate on them long enough, you'll be in deep despair. There's probably enough stuff in all of your lives to just cause total depression. And you could just go meditate on oh, this and that, oh man. Or you could say, okay, next to that, is the overriding hand of God, and I'll trust in God, I'll rejoice in the God of my salvation. Quite a gap between how this book begins and how it ends. And there's a process of faith, true faith, the just shall live by faith. And this is a demonstration of true faith. True faith. That the process begins with honest doubt, as we said. Lord, I don't understand. I want to know some, some answers. I'm not shaking my fist at you. I'm not angry with you, but I want to come before you with my questions. Folks, when you do that and you press in to find out why things are the way they are and let God answer you, you'll come up with some pretty satisfying answers. You can read all the other books about it. You can talk to a lot of people, but you go to God directly. You say, God, I want some answers to these things in particular.
That's how it begins. An honest kind of a coming to God. Secondly, he waited on God. Chapter 2, verse 1. I'll go to the ramparts and I'll wait and see what God has to say to me. Now that's hard for us, isn't it? Lord, I want answers. That's easy. I will come to God and say that. But now, God, I'll wait to see what you have to say. You know how hard that was for Habakkuk? The Babylonians had already taken the northern kingdom, had taken Assyria. They were coming down through Judea. They were on the brink of Jerusalem, no doubt. And he says, I'm going to (laughs) wait. You're going to wait? What would it be like, wives? Now, just think about this. Your husband comes home. He just lost his job. You have the last paycheck and all of it's going to go to bills. And he says, honey, I lost my job today. You lost your job? Yeah, I lost my job. Well, what are you going to do? I thought I'd go away for a week and pray. What? You get out there and hit the pavement, buddy. No, I think I'm going to wait on God. Now, some guys have used that as an excuse not to work, but imagine how that would sound. I'm going to wait upon God. It's not easy to wait, but when you wait, you're strengthened. They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. David said, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my prayer. He pulled me out of a deep pit, out of the miry clay, set my feet upon the rock, established my goings, and He put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. And many will hear it and see it and trust in the Lord. It comes from waiting. Bring your questions before God and then wait upon the Lord. It's not easy. Let me conclude with a little story, a true story of a man that I met in India named Paulos. To this date, his visage, his picture is emblazoned in my mind. I can see him. He made such an impact on me. He left his place where he was serving the Lord as a pastor and he went down to the southern coastal areas of southern India to preach to the fishermen of that area. God just put a burden on his heart there would be a revival that would break out among the fishermen of the coastal, southern coastal lands of India. He went without really telling anyone where he was going. He didn't send out a missionary support letter. Didn't ask people for finances or funds. He just told a few of his close friends, and they all said, you're nuts. You've got a wife and kids, two kids. Well, God told me to go. I'm going. And he went. When he went down there, couldn't find work. Um, he tried it. He could, still couldn't find work. Uh, he was renting a house. They kicked him out of the house. I don't know. I can't remember all the particulars, but he said things got so bad that he ran completely out of food. And he said, I would go to bed at night. I couldn't sleep because I would hear my baby crying for no food. He was hungry. And all we had to give him was water. And so he said, I woke up the next day and I finally prayed. I said, Lord, we have no food. You turn water into wine. You can make this water as if it were all the nutrition that a bottle of milk would have. So by faith, I'm going to give this baby this water and trust you that you will nourish this child and just provide every nutrient miraculously. That's faith. What else did he have to cling on to? He knew no one there. And it's interesting, you know, he said, we said, well, now why didn't you tell some, why didn't you write some of your, your, your friends back in, at home? He said, I believe that I need to tell God my needs and no one else. That's just how I've lived. He said, my baby began to grow. Quit crying. We were just drinking water for, for days, for weeks. And he said, as I stayed there by faith, He said, interesting things happened. A guy in the village gave me a house. Just said, you can stay in this house as long as you need it. Cheers, take it. So I had a free home. Then, letters came in the mail. And my name wasn't even on on the postal service. But letters came from my friends sending us money. He said, the thing is, no one knew where we were at. Except that one person. I don't know if they found out through him or what, but all of a sudden, the finances came and we had even more than we needed. Much more. And we were able to use it for a variety of things for the family and outreach. And he says, God just provided. 
but I just waited upon the Lord. Wow. To this day, there's nothing that could ever happen to this guy that would cause him to lose his joy now after that. He has seen firsthand God care for him. And he's trusted God. And so Habakkuk said, I will rejoice. I will join the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on the high hills. To the chief musician with my stringed instruments. You might at this point say, Skip, it's so hard to live by faith. I'll I'll agree. But think of it. It's much harder to live without it. (laughs) Now think honestly as a Christian. Living with faith or without faith, which is easier? It's hard to live by faith. It's a lot harder to live without it. And your joy will be in direct proportion to your trust. It will be. Spoke to, again, a young lady today. She's saying, it's so hard to trust God. She's a Christian. I said, let me ask you something. What other options do you have? Think of every option you have at this point with what's going on in your life. Who else are you going to trust? Where else are you going to go? You know too much already. You're a Christian and you've seen how God works and you know who He is and what He can do and now you're left with that decision. Will I trust Him or not? And you can walk out here and say, though there's no figs on the vine, there's no grapes on the vine, the, the olive fails, no, herd, no herds in the stall, I'll rejoice in the Lord. That is true faith. I don't understand what you're doing, but God, go for it. Do your thing, man. You know a lot better than I do. And so I'll rest in you. You know a lot better than I do. And so I'll rest in you.